Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. Thank you for being here today. As I said at the beginning of the service, we're now at the point in the Gospel of John where we're going to hear the most often told story in human history. We've been in this Bible book for a long time, and we subtitled this study, Jesus IRL. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus in real life. Well, today, this story has been told so many times that if you were to basically sum up all of the famous stories in history, let's talk about those fake news stories like Y2K and the world will come to an end on January 1st of 2000, right? But that fizzled out. Or fake news stories like the famous Greek clash of the titans that never really happened, or even like OJ was innocent. If you were to put all of those stories together, it doesn't equal this one. Not even the true stories out there. I'm talking about the stories of the Battle of Thermopylae that we still tell 2,500 years later. I'm talking about the kind of stories that people continue to repeat, stories like the fall of Rome, stories that are so important that they still talk about it, like when Kim and Kanye got divorced. If you put all of those things together, it still doesn't equate to the story the Bible is going to describe for us today. And I need you to be very careful. So today's sermon, actually the next three weeks, comes with a disclaimer, because if you're not careful, you're going to miss something really, really important. How many of you have watched a movie 10 times, and then all of a sudden, on the 10th time, there's something in that movie that you've never seen before, like, wait a second, did they just add that to the 10th time that I watched it, or was that there the whole time? Or you're driving home, and you notice a street sign on the side of the road. You've been down this route thousands of times, but all of a sudden, there's a sign there, and you're starting to ask yourself, Has that sign always been there? Because this is the first time that I've ever seen it, and it's a really important sign. I've just never noticed it before. I think that's what happens when people start to read the story of the death of Jesus. And what I want to do today for just a couple of minutes, before we even get into the Bible, is to point out a couple of really important things. But if you just blow through this story, if you just don't pay attention you're going to miss the fact that Jesus, what he goes through on that cross is far more than his physical pain. The pain that Jesus has to endure on those few hours on that cross was way beyond physical. Of course, We preachers love to tell you stories about physically how his body was broken and how his blood was poured out, and we focus on that. But there's a lot more to what you're going to hear in the Bible. So what I'm going to do, something a little bit different, is I'm going to try to read the whole story for us in just a second of the events from the time that Pilate pronounces judgment to the time that Jesus is nailed to the cross. I'm going to read all of it for us. And then I want to point out a couple of things that if you just blow through this passage in the Bible, you're going to miss it. Things that are far more significant than just his physical suffering. 
but I need to catch you up to speed. So let's say you're, you're joining us for the first time. Let's say you're reading the Bible for the first time. At this point, what's happened is that Jesus has offended the religious leaders, the pastors and priests of his day. And he's basically told them, the way that you're doing church is all wrong and it doesn't honor God. And they hate him so much that they decide, we're going to kill this man. We're not, even, we're not only going to kill him, we're going to kill him in the most painful and the most public way possible. We're going to arrange this fake trial. We're going to arrest him. We're going to convict him. And then we're going to convince the, the Romans to crucify him on the most celebrated holiday festival of the year. So more people get a chance to see this today than any other day of the year. They've taken Jesus to Pilate. They've begged and pleaded Pilate to kill him. And Pilate says, that man's innocent. I am not going to have anything to do with killing an innocent man. And then they trick Pilate and back him into a corner. And they say, Jesus claimed to be king. And by him being a king, it's a threat to your boss, Caesar, in Rome. And if you don't kill him, you're not loyal to Caesar. And you know what happens to uh, Roman governors who are not loyal to Caesar? Anybody want to take a guess? Yeah, you die. So either he dies or you die, Pilate. You take your pick. And when he gets back into a corner like that, Pilate sits down on the judgment seat in a very public way and pronounces judgment on Jesus and instructs his soldiers to crucify him. That's where we left off last week. The Bible is going to pick up for us, John chapter 19, starting in verse 17. And it's going to tell us what happens between the time that Pilate says crucify him and the time that he gets to the cross. And there is some pretty important details here that I want us to focus on. So John chapter 19, starting in verse 17. Then they took Jesus away. The they are the Roman guards here. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Now, it's important. John wants you to know about the Aramaic language. Say Aramaic out loud. In Aramaic, this place that he went to, everybody knew about. In fact, it had its own title or its own name, the place of the skull or Golgotha. There, they crucified him. But here's where the details start to come in. They crucified him and two others with him, one on either side of him with Jesus in the middle. According to John, this must be a pretty important detail here. We'll, t we'll talk about why in just a second. Pilate also had a sign made and put it on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This thing is not going forward for me, Joseph, thank you. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Apparently, this sign is a really big deal to Pilate. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, What I have written I have written. In today's English, what Pilate said is, I'm in charge, you're not, you can go pound sand. The sign's going to stay the way that it is. And when the Roman soldiers, or when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and they divided them, they divided them into four parts. A part 
for each soldier. That's important, but these soldiers didn't know it. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it, because this thing is really valuable. And this happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Now, what I want to do for a few moments in Luke chapter, I mean, in, in John chapter 19, is just describe ways that his pain was beyond the physical. We'll talk just briefly about the physical suffering that the cross uh, caused Jesus, but there's actually a lot of details here that are not physical in nature, like the spectacle that went on when Jesus was crucified. And by spectacle, I mean this public demonstration. The Bible is describing for us, even from the very beginning of this account, all four of the books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spend time on the crucifixion. In fact, when they describe Jesus' life, let's say that he was between 30 and 35 years old. We'll just put it in the middle. Around 33 years old, those four books spend more time on this one incident, just a few hours of Jesus' life, than all of the rest of the events of Jesus' life, even his miraculous birth. Apparently, for those followers of Jesus, those first followers of Jesus, this was the biggest deal that you need to know about. Well, the, actually, the biggest deal comes in the next chapter. And they're going to tell us a little bit about the events surrounding the crucifixion. And it's a very public death. You see, what the Bible is describing here is when the Romans typically crucified somebody, Jesus would be standing in Jerusalem, kind of the heart of the city, and they would pronounce him guilty. And then the Roman soldiers, this execution or death squad would take over. And typically what would happen is that a, a prisoner or a criminal would be paraded through the city streets, probably carrying the cross beam, the top horizontal member of the cross. What historians think is this famous Via Della Rosa, the road of his suffering, the road of his death. Jesus will start at the spot where he's condemned, and he'll be paraded through the city so that all of the Jews in Jerusalem get a chance to see him going to his death. But he also, John stresses this, they take him to a hillside right outside of Jerusalem, can't kill him inside the city, it's Passover, that's against the Jewish law, so we're going to kill him outside the city, but here's the deal, this is a major thoroughfare, and there are Jews coming from all over the known world. This is a day where you're supposed to leave your home, leave your family, come to Jerusalem, and celebrate the Passover. Many people see him in the city. Many more people, according to John, see him outside the city, and they're going to read that sign when they walk by him hanging on the cross. And this is a very public spectacle. And I need you to remember at this point, please don't forget this important detail, that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of Man, but he's also the all-powerful Son of God. And when he's going through this public shame and spectacle and disgrace that you read about in the Bible, he can choose not to go through it. He can 
exercise his power and change the circumstances. He can just sneeze and make all of the people that want him dead go away, but he doesn't exercise any of that authority. He submits himself to this public disgrace while he's carrying the cross, while he's being paraded through the city streets, while he's marching up the side of the hill, while they're nailing him in a public place, and they did it in such a way so that everybody who walks by sees, don't do what that guy did, because if you do what that guy did, you're going to get what happened to that guy. And the Jews and the Romans are trying to disgrace Jesus by making this very, very public. It could have been stoning in the back alley somewhere. That's the traditional way of killing somebody for blasphemy, the crime that they claimed Jesus was committing. But they don't. They make it a very public spectacle. And not only is it a spectacle, but John pays special attention to the people on Jesus' left and on his right. I mean, the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel writers in the New Testament, they tell you that he was crucified with two criminals but they don't give you the detail that John gives you. John tells you Jesus is crucified in the middle of these two guys. Now, the two guys are wrong. We know that they've done wrong because the other books of the New Testament tell us they were criminals, they were convicted, even while they're hanging on the cross, they're saying, you know what, we deserve this, but not that man. John is telling us, though, that Jesus is crucified in the middle of them that one's on his right and one's on his left. And I don't think that's an accident. You see, I think what the Romans are doing right now is telling you, yeah, there are three criminals being crucified outside of town, but the guy in the middle, he's the worst. In fact, he's the ringleader. And we got him so that the other people in town would see what happened to him and they wouldn't do what happened to him. You can lose the meaning of this if you're not careful. You can rush right through it and miss the fact that Jesus is crucified, the payment for your sin. See, according to the Bible, Deuteronomy tells us that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. It's, if you were to leave them there overnight, it's like God saying, I, don't, I won't have anything to do with this person again. That's how severe this form of death penalty is. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus doesn't deserve it. The guys on his left and on their right, they deserve it. And I think I need you to hear from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, that the wages of sin is what? death and that all of us have sinned all of us have fallen short of the glory of God all of us deserve to hang on the cross but Hebrew says wait a second Jesus was tempted in every possible way not just three times by Satan when he's out in the, the desert and Satan's trying to get him to eat a bite of food no he was tempted in every way a human being could possibly be tempted and then the Bible tells us this but he never gave in he never sinned there's only one man who's ever walked on planet Earth, only one human being that can claim, I've never done wrong, I don't deserve to die. And Jesus is that man, according to Hebrews. And now he's hanging between a society of criminals, and he's being placed in the middle of them as a public spectacle, and it almost implies to everybody walking by, he's the worst of the three. That's why we put him in the middle. And when you see him, 
He did wrong, and that's why he's dying. And you and I know that Jesus is the only innocent man to ever live, yet he's dying the most public, disgraceful, painful kind of death imaginable in his day. And he's right in the middle of it as the spectacle, but also the warning for all of us. Now, it's interesting. Twice in these verses that we just read, John just makes this very short, very succinct statement, and they took him out and crucified him, and he was crucified. And that statement, that very short statement, doesn't get into any of the details of his suffering. In fact, if you want to learn about his suffering, you've got to read about what happened before this event. When they arrested him and bound him and carried him away out of the garden to go stand trial in front of these Jewish leaders. When the Romans got a hold of them and Pilate said, I know what I'll do. I'll get these guys off my back by beating him so bad that when I bring them out in front of the crowds, they're going to be shocked and appalled by what they see. And the Bible does describe the beating that he took before the crucifixion. Like the way the other Bible writers tell us that they slapped him, struck him, plucked out his beard, and spit on his face. How John tells us, they fashioned a crown of thorns. Oh, you're supposed to be a king? Well, you need to have a crown. And they pressed that crown of thorns deep into his forehead. They put a robe on him, and they mocked him, and they flogged him. And then if you were to read what John is telling us, is that Jesus starts to carry his cross. Now, it's common in Jesus' day that he would carry the horizontal member of the cross on his shoulders, and he would carry it through the city streets. It's possible that because they really wanted to, uh, ex- they really wanted to make him suffer, that he ended up carrying the whole thing. He's carrying it through the city streets, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us he's so physically weak at this point. The suffering is so bad that he doesn't have the strength to carry it up the hill to Golgotha. And so Jesus falls and crumbles under the suffering. It's not the weight of the cross. It's all of the pain and the torture that he's been through up to this point. And they also tell us that because Jews have come into town from all over the known world, these Greek-speaking Jews, that they grab a guy from the, the country of Cyrene by the name of Simon, and the Roman guards grab him and force him to carry the cross the rest of the way up the hill for Jesus because he's been beat that bad at this point. It's almost as if the Bible doesn't want to focus on the suffering of Jesus as much as they want to focus on what's happening around the incident because maybe what's happening around the incident is more important than the actual incident itself maybe the the what's happening around the crucifixion is more important than the details of the crucifixion itself and this is the part of the book the part of the story that they make movies and preachers spend all of their time talking about it's not that it's not important i just want you to know there are a lot of other events that are equally or perhaps even more important than just the method of his execution, like his shame. See, if you were to go to the great cathedrals of Europe and go to their gift shops and buy a crucifix, it's almost always going to show a guy hanging on a cross with a loincloth on. 
but that's not entirely accurate. You see, Pilate makes a sign, and I thought a lot about this sign. I, I hope you have too. Pilate, he's in charge. He doesn't have to make a sign at all, but he does. He makes a sign, and he nails it to the cross, and then the Bible tells us that Pilate wants everyone no one can miss what this sign says. And the reason he wants everybody to know is because he writes it in Latin. That's the language of the Romans in the city. He writes it in Greek, which for all of those Jews that came from outside of Judea, the, the foreign Jews that came here to celebrate uh, Passover, they were undoubtedly Greek speakers. And he writes it in Aramaic, which is the language of the day, Jesus's language in Jerusalem. So no matter where you're from, when you see that cross and the sign on that cross, you can read it. And it's not uncommon to make a cross or a sign that, and nail it to a cross that says, this is the crime that we're crucifying this guy for. In fact, it was pretty common because it was the way that you would deter somebody from trying to do what this guy did. But what that sign says is really, really important. And the fact that Pilate would write this in three different languages means Pilate doesn't want to miss. Pilate doesn't want anybody to miss this sign. I, I've been thinking about this sign for a long time. Like, why did he do it? Was this Pilate's way of shaming Jesus and trying to discredit the fact that he claimed to be the king of the Jews? Maybe it was Pilate's way of getting back at the priest and the pastors, right? The religious leaders. You guys back me in a corner with this, with this um, legal and this political jargon. Hey, he claimed to be a king, and you can't be a friend of Caesar if you let a guy who claims to be king off the hook. So Pilate, you have no choice but to kill him. Maybe this is Pilate's way of getting back at those guys. Because they're so offended by what this sign says that they go right to Pilate and order him to take down the sign or to change it. And Pilate doesn't listen to their advice. I'm going to leave the sign the way it says. Was it Pilate's way of telling the crowds, this guy claimed to be king of the Jews? And when I heard him, I don't know if this is true or not, but I know he's not guilty of what the religious leaders claimed that he was guilty of. Because many times up to this point, Pilate has tried to get him off of their back. Was this sign a way of warning everybody? If you claim to be king, that's a threat against my boss, Caesar. And I'm not going to let that happen. So read this sign as a warning. You do what he does, and you're going to get what happened to him. Like, I'm trying to figure out what was Pilate's real reason for making this sign. No matter what it was, that sign was supposed to shame him and disgrace him. And then something fascinating happens. These callous Roman soldiers, this death squad that has probably crucified many people. In fact, there's a Jewish historian that tells us there is a day in Jewish history where they crucify more than a thousand Jews in one day. So they're really good at this act of death and execution. But they're at the cross and chances are Jesus has been carrying that cross through the city streets fully dressed. But when he gets to the cross, they're like, you don't need those clothes anymore. So I tell you what, there's four of us. You got an outer garment that has four pieces. We're just going to rip it up into pieces. Each one of us is going to take it with us. We can make a little bit of money off of that. But there's also a tunic, an inner garment. It's pretty nice tunic. 
it's a pretty valuable tunic. Hey, let's don't rip this tunic up. Let's play dice and see who wins the tunic. And whoever wins the tunic can go wash it and sell it on the city streets and probably make a lot of money on the tunic, which means Jesus was wearing what when they nailed him to the cross? That tunic was his underwear. And when they took the outer garment, when they took the tunic off of him, he is naked and being disgraced and publicly humiliated for the entire world, Romans, Greek-speaking, Aramaic-speaking Jews to see while he's hanging up on that cross. And that little crucifix that you buy at the gift store, it doesn't really adequately represent the shame that Jesus is going through when he's hanging up on that cross. You know what else the Bible tells us in John? That these pagan, probably foreign idol worshiping Roman soldiers, what else was happening? They couldn't possibly know it at the time. But they were doing exactly what God said was going to happen centuries before this event. Because when God predicted the death of Messiah, when he uttered what it was going to be like through the prophets, the prophets said, and they split my garments up, and they also cast lots for my garments. These two things seemingly are contradictory until you get to the cross. And these Roman soldiers are doing exactly what God said they were going to do. He just said they were going to do this centuries before this event. And now Jesus is a spectacle hanging there for everyone in town and everyone coming from out of town to see. With a sign on him above his head that's meant to discredit him. And he's hanging up there naked and brutally beat, probably close to death by the time that they actually nailed him to the cross. But there's also one last thing that you really need to know about. Because when these soldiers were just doing their job, right? Like, hey, I'm part of the execution squad and I was drafted into the Roman army and I don't even like it, but I don't also have a choice because I've been sent here to Judea in this rebellious land and we're crucifying a lot of people. When the soldiers were doing their jobs, I'm convinced that they had no idea who that was that they were nailing to the cross. In fact, the very first person at the crucifixion that realizes what's really going on is a Roman company commander, a centurion, who when he watches the way Jesus dies, says, wait a second, this wasn't a common criminal. This wasn't even a common man. This surely must have been the son of God, and we just nailed him to a cross, and we just killed him. And these soldiers are just doing their jobs. They couldn't possibly know that by doing their jobs, these callous soldiers were actually working according to Scripture. In Acts chapter 10, when it describes Jesus' death, it uses this language, that he not only died, but he even died by crucifixion, saying, of all of the ways to die, this is surely the worst because of the five things that you see on the screens. There are other ways to die that are not nearly this bad. And Acts chapter 10 is kind of pointing back in the Old Testament to what Deuteronomy 21 says. Man, there's ways to pass capital judgment against somebody for blasphemy. But Deuteronomy 21 says, this is the worst, man. Hanging on a tree is as bad as it gets. And it's so bad that we can't leave them on the tree overnight because anybody who's left on a tree overnight is accursed by God. 
That's why he loses, he gives up his life before the sun goes down and they're taking him off of the cross in one day when usually people can stay up there for two or three days or more. But I want you to notice, in spite of all of these details, and they're right there for you as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I think there's something even more important going on that we learn about after the cross. Tell you a quick story, and I'm going to tell this story to honor a guy who's visiting today, Brandon Young, who is at Second Ranger Battalion with me. Back in the day, back early in the global war on terrorism, I was in Second Ranger Battalion, and we were on a fire base on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. We came under enemy rocket attack. These are 107 millimeter rockets, can be fired from a long distance, but usually they're fired from mountaintops so that you can see the valleys below. And we're on this fire base that's on the border of Pakistan, and we start to receive rocket attacks. It's not unusual. In fact, it's actually quite common for us during those days. But the rockets start to get closely, closer. Usually, those rockets are so far away that nobody even gets a scratch on them. That's how inept the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were at firing rockets. I used to think to myself, if I could help you guys fire rockets, you could kill a whole lot more Americans this way. <laughs> but the rockets start to get closer. And then they start to land closer. And pretty soon, one lands right in front of us. And now, people are starting to get uh, concerned. Then the next rocket comes in, and it lands right behind us. And it's obvious, the guy on the mountain that's directing the rockets knows exactly where we're at. He had to work his way up there, walk the rockets up to us. And now that one has landed in front of us and one's landed behind us, I looked at the rangers that were next to me and said, you know where the next one's going to land, right? Right down our throat because they have us bracketed. They know exactly where we are. And sure enough, rockets keep coming in and now they're landing all around us and guys are getting wounded. And rangers respond the way they've been trained to respond. Immediately, they get on the gun jeeps and they start taking off across the valley. There's a ranger mortar section that's returning fire on that hillside and the rest of them get on gun jeeps and start taking, across, taking off across that valley and starting to make their way up the hill. I jump on the vehicles with those rangers and we're about 10 minutes into the drive making our way up the hill when all of a sudden, the leader of this patrol gets a call on the radio from his commander and it's clear by his voice that his commander is frantic and he's screaming hey where are you report your position to me immediately which kind of slows this down but not much and the guy gets the exact location on his gps and he sends it to the commander over the radio very soon after this a senior voice a very senior voice gets on the radio and calls to this leader stop your position set up a defensive perimeter do not move and of course all of us are confused right now like if we don't keep moving the guys that were launching those rockets are just going to pack up shop and go away but okay boss if you want us to stop and to wait we'll stop and we'll wait for what seems like 15 20 minutes and then the next order has all of us spitting mad. Because the next order is get back on the vehicles, pack all of your equipment up, and return to the same base that you just left from. 
stop pursuing the enemy, stop trying to kill bad guys, get back on the vehicles, and go back to the base. And all of us were livid at this instructions. But spent the rest of the night in that base. The next morning, because I'm the battalion chaplain and got lots of people all over Afghanistan and Iraq, I leave those guys and go to another location. And while I'm at this bigger U.S. base, I'm grabbing something to eat about midnight in the dining facility, and there's TVs on in the tent that we call a dining facility, broadcasting the news in the nightly news in the U.S. It's a defense department briefing. And Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld is conducting a press briefing. This is quite unusual because usually it's his press secretary that does this, but instead of his press secretary, it's Rumsfeld himself in a room full of reporters in the Pentagon, and he's giving them updates on what's happening at this point in Afghanistan, what's going on in Iraq. And one guy very early in the press briefing says, hey, I, I just got a question for you, Secretary Rumsfeld. Did the U.S. invade Pakistan last night? And that sparked like five other questions, and all of them apparently had knowledge of some incident that happened last night. And I could see it in Rumsfeld's face. I could hear it in his voice. He was very frustrated that that question came up. And you could almost hear him say, well, here we go. And for the next 10 minutes, Rumsfeld uh, answered questions about a U.S. invasion of Pakistan last night. What Rumsfeld said is apparently U.S. forces pursued the enemy across the border into Pakistan and were closing on the enemy, the Taliban, in Pakistan when, uh, they, when the Department of Defense gave the call to pull the U.S. forces a handful of rangers on gun jeeps chasing the enemy into Pakistan and pulled the forces back across the border into Afghanistan. By the way, all of us knew we were in Pakistan at that point. Here's what I need you to understand. What Rumsfeld was saying is the prime minister of Pakistan in Islamabad and the president of the United States and the secretary of defense in Washington, D.C. were all on the phone with each other because of what happened last night on that little valley floor in Pakistan. And it was just a handful of us doing what we have been trained to do all along. Nobody could possibly understand the geopolitical consequences of just doing what you've trained rangers to do and spitting mad when they were given the order to go back across the border into Afghanistan and continue to suck down 107-millimeter rockets all night long. I'm telling you this story for a reason. Because what's happening to Jesus physically is important. Actually, it's very, very important. But what's happening around Jesus politically and uh, spiritually is far more important than what happens to him physically. And I think that's why the Bible is giving us so much details about the Roman guards and the Roman governor, why it's telling us so much about the sign and about the crowds, about the spectacle and the shame. We've got far more information about that than the two very simple statements that say they crucified him and when they crucified him, and that's all we get. In fact, I think what the Bible is trying to do is to tell us there's actually something happening between heaven and earth 
between good and evil, between God and Satan, that is far more important than a body hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem. Spiritually, what's happening is of the utmost importance, and that's why this is the most often repeated story in human history. See, without that cross, you and I are hopeless before a holy God. But Jesus said to his followers, this is the reason that I've come. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, handed over, and crucified, and I will become an atoning sacrifice. I will become the payment for, my, for their sins. And John even tells us, when he's lifted up on that cross and magnified, he'll draw people from all over the world to himself. What's happening spiritually is far more important not how this went down, but why this happened is of infinite value and importance to your soul. Which means maybe somebody's watching this right now and and it just occurred to you for the first time in your life, like maybe the light bulb just came on and you're realizing, you know what? He did that for me. He gave his life up for me. And the only appropriate response to that, like no amount of money or praying or going to church is a, is a good enough response to that action on the cross. The only proper response is for me to give my life back to him in return. And in just a second, I'm going to pray that somebody in this room or somebody who's tuned in and listening online will make that exchange, the great exchange of trading your sins for his righteousness and trading his death for your eternal life. But for everybody else, sons and daughters of the living God, I read Romans 8 at the beginning of this service on purpose because no matter what you faced last week, no matter what you're going to face this week, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Let me hear you say amen. Amen. And the proof of this is the cross. You want to know whether or not your Father in heaven loves you? Don't look to anything or anywhere else. You look to the payment for your sins and the price that was paid on that cross. And that's all the proof you need. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.